This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions and conclusions. Please talk to your healthcare team regarding your specific situation. Hello and welcome to the Speak Gyno podcast. This is Nee Gutenfelder, and I'm really grateful to have joining us today is Sarah Nielsen from North Carolina. She's a five-year vaginal cancer survivor. A few months back, I came across a video that Sarah created to raise awareness for September's Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. So I reached out to Sarah to see if she would be open to sharing her story and was so happy when she agreed to it. Sarah was a busy professional with a young family when her life was suddenly derailed by cancer diagnosis. And though she has been cancer-free for five years, she is dedicated to advocating for HPV-related cancer awareness and prevention. Sarah is a graduate of Survivor School, a nationally recognized advocacy training, and is a frequent speaker on the topics of HPV prevention and awareness, cervical and vaginal cancer awareness and prevention, women's health, and survivorship. In addition to her advocacy work, Sarah is a scholar and practitioner with roughly 18 years experience teaching and practicing in the field of organ organizational psychology. She earned her doctorate and master's degree in industrial organizational psychology from the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and is currently an associate professor of human relations at High Point University. In her spare time, you can usually find Sarah playing tennis and exploring the trails and rivers around North Carolina with her husband, three children, and Labrador retrievers. Her most recent adventure was a trek up Mount Kilimanjaro and fundraising to build a cervical cancer screening clinic. That is quite an adventure, Sarah, and Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Nee. This is lovely. Sarah, if we could start off, if you could share with us, take us back to the beginning of when your story started. Sure. So my story actually starts, I suppose, back in 2010. I had just given birth to my third child and went in for a routine checkup. And that's when they told me that I had an abnormal pap result. So I'd come in, I'd never heard of that before. Like a lot of women, I think I was just getting paps and not really knowing what they were actually doing with them. And so I went in and of course, and they told me that it was abnormal. I had cervical dysplasia and I think it was SIN3, which is at the level at which they would want to treat it. So basically what that means is that I had HPV related cervical abnormalities. It's pre-cancer, but they mm-hmm. do treat it. Um, and usually when they treat it, they'll ablate it with a laser or something or go in and do like a comb biopsy where they cut it out. It's an outpatient procedure and it usually for most women takes care of it and you never have trouble anymore. I mean, it's mm-hmm. super common. In fact, I think I had a friend in college even who had it done. And so a lot of women have it done and don't really even know what it means. So I had a couple of procedures and it wasn't going away. After a few more months, I had a hysterectomy, total hysterectomy. That was in 2011. And after that, I was followed up fairly closely. So every few months or so, I would go in for another checkup. And I was finally released after about three years. And they said, okay, you can come back to us like a normal person now, just once a year. Mm-hmm. And even just a few months after that, actually, I came back to my gynecologist because I'd started having a normal bleeding. And of course, I'd already had a hysterectomy, so I shouldn't have had any bleeding. Right. So they did another exam and turns out that I, uh, the do- and the doctor could feel and, and see it in the office when I was there in the stirrups, but I had a mass. So after testing and all that kind of jazz, after about a month or so, they diagnosed me with 
um, stage two vaginal cancer. And that was in 2014. The cervical dysplasia kind of started in 2010. So it was a few years after that before I got a diagnosis. So there were um, symptoms and things going on for quite some time. There were, yeah. And, you know, the funny thing about the dysplasia is that it, they're really kind of asymptomatic, or at least mine were. Anyway, I had no idea I had any trouble. If I hadn't gone to the doctor and gotten my exam, who knows what could have happened. It could have happened a lot sooner or gotten a lot worse even. When I came back with bleeding, certainly with a tumor the size of mine, typically most people have symptoms like pain or difficulty urinating, things like that. But I honestly didn't have anything except that abnormal bleeding. Mm -hmm. So it varies, you know, even per person and per experience. I did have some symptoms that I wanted to get checked out for sure. And so that's what prompted me to go back to the doctor. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Um, yeah. yeah. What did your treatment entail? Actually, my treatment for vaginal cancer was really pretty similar to what I now know as the kind of standard protocol for cervical cancer. So I think it was about a month and a half or so, maybe two months total. I had weekly chemotherapy. So I went in it once a week for that. And it was about, you know, you sit in there and I had an IV and all of that. So it took a few hours. And then I had daily external radiation. So I went in and had my tumors marked and had that done. And so I think it was about about 25 or 30 external radiation treatments where you go in every day at a specific time. And then the one thing that kind of differs from standard cervical treatment is that I had an internal brachytherapy treatment, but it wasn't an outpatient. It was an inpatient treatment at the hospital. So I had to go in and it was, um, I was in the hospital for about a week all told. And essentially what they do is they implant these little gold seeds. It's called interstitial brachytherapy. Then they install a device that is comprised of varying numbers of long tubes or needles that are irradiated and they implant that device and it delivers a consistent and low dose of radiation over the period of several days. Mm -hmm. So I had that done. I think mine had, I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 20 long needles um, installed and so you lie there and you're immobile, you're conscious. So I just kind of laid there in the bed for <laughs> four or five days with this horrible device. I can't implanted. imagine. Yeah, it really sounds kind of ghastly, doesn't it? And, mm-hmm. and, and it is, honestly. It, it's pretty awful. But, you know, I had a constant pain drip. So I was never in pain, though, of course, I there were times when I was very uncomfortable. The weirdest part about that treatment is that, and, and uh, you know, I've also since found out that it's also a treatment that's used for prostate cancer. So a lot of, though I haven't really spoken to any prostate cancer survivors, I imagine that our experiences in this regard will be kind of similar. It was just very strange because you had to be isolated because of the level of the radiation. For instance, my family could only stay for maybe 15 minutes and it was one person at a time. And my kids were definitely not allowed in that area. So my husband came once a day for about 15 minutes mm-hmm. or my mom, one or the other. And then even the nurses had to be careful of the level of radiation. So they had these little tags on their uniforms that would alert them to the amount of radiation that they were exposed to. Mm-hmm. And so the nurses would frequently rotate as well. And it was pretty quick visits. They'd come in, they'd stay for a couple minutes and then they'd head out. So I spent a lot of time alone mm-hmm. in the room and thank goodness for Wi-Fi and audio, yeah. <laughs> audio books <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think I've listened to as many podcasts in my entire life. <laughs> that, that, that trip in the hospital is really kind of the last of it. it. I was there for about a week, and then I was able to come home, and, and that was the end of my treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you going into explaining some of the detail, because I remember I had the external as well as the internal radiation treatment, bracket therapy, but mine was mm-hmm. in a doctor's office. And I remember being there several hours in this, mm-hmm. being held in this position with things put in, you know, stuck up in me and waiting for this physicist to do some kind of calculations <laughs> for the for the treatment. But I can only imagine what it's like to be in the hospital for several days and to see the hospital staff following protocol as well as your visitors. But you're the, you're the constant there the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it just mm-hmm. sounds very scary just hearing it. Is. It is. It was kind of scary. I mean, thankfully, you know, looking back on it, I think, gosh, that sounds so horrible. And I would hate to describe this and then frighten somebody away from getting the treatment done. Right. I think that's probably one reason why I've been somewhat reluctant in the past to talk about it, because I don't, I would hate to describe the reality of it and then scare somebody away from it. Because I felt like a lot of cancer survivors probably do. Like I didn't have a choice now because mm-hmm. this was the treatment that was going to work. And, you know, if you want to live, you want to get rid of your cancer, then you do whatever is necessary. So I certainly did it. But, you know, my treatment team was super positive. And like I said, I, I had constant pain uh, medication. So I, I wasn't in severe pain. And we just kind of took it day by day. And, you know, I got through it. Thankfully, it, it worked. You know, it's a beast of a treatment, but it, it worked. Just like the internal brachytherapy that, that a lot of cervical patients like you have. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty beastly, but it, it works. And fortunately, it's over pretty quickly. <laughs> well, you bring up a really important point is that we just we need to really focus on the end result and mm-hmm. whatever, however, we get to that point to to fight for our life because it is so worth living. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, in the scheme of things, the treatment is so transient. I mean, it's it's such a small period of time. It's amazing, really, what how much of an impact something so small can have on the on the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But it is over pretty quickly, you know, yeah. and it, at least for me it was important to kind of keep my eyes on the prize if right, you will. right well do you have any side effects that you still experience today from the treatment that you had several years ago I do actually that's a great question because interestingly radiation is the gift that keeps on giving so the acute effects of the radiation of course that a lot of vaginal and cervical patients have are you know like the vomiting diarrhea all that kind of stuff that goes away usually within a few weeks but long term that tissue is damaged and it continues to kind of decay slowly over time. So what that means, especially if you're irradiated in the vaginal area, is that that tissue will become tougher and less pliable. Mm-hmm. And essentially, the scar tissue starts to kind of more or less extend and become bigger. So the, my vagina is actually, um, which sounds strange to say, but it's like shrinking mm-hmm. constantly. It's kind of ever shrinking. So I have to dilate. Mm-hmm. So I have to use a dilator fairly regularly to stretch it to make sure that, you know, it's still a viable vagina. So for exams and intercourse and all that kind of good stuff, that's one side effect. Another one is that most, for, for me at least, my side effects kind of are limited to a lot of GI issues. So I have a lot of gastric ulcers and food intolerances and all kinds of things. So I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about and trying to problem solve poop issues to be totally honest mm-hmm. with you. I um, hear you. I have this, I have similar <laughs> issues as well. <laughs> 
it's kind of crazy how much of my time, like you, I'm sure, is spent just like thinking about poop and it's just kind of silly, but that's really kind of the bigger effect. So for me, they're really kind of limited to GI issues and then also to vaginal issues. So it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's had an effect on a romantic life, of course. We're still very happily married, but, you know, you have to figure your way around uh, the realities of the effects of having, you know, internal radiation like that. It's significant. So we find our way around it and mm-hmm. we're open-minded and so there you go. Were you ever tested for HPV? Good question. I was tested for HPV back in 2010 when I first had my cervical dysplasia. They did an HPV test. And at the time, I very vividly remember when I went in because at that point still I had no idea what dysplasia was. And mm-hmm. um, she said, oh gosh, this thing is so common when for people with HPV and you probably could have picked my job off the floor because I had no idea what that was and my only knowledge of HPV at that point was that it could cause genital warts mm-hmm. and I didn't have those and I'm pretty sure I even told her no I, I think you've made a mistake I don't I don't have HPV and she said no you you definitely have it and so then that really kind of started my learning experience about what HPV is and how common it is and the extent to which it can cause all these cancers potentially and so I did I was HPV tested and at that point it really kind of stimulated and encouraged me to learn more about it once I learned how common it was that really has since fueled my advocacy by and large it's focused on helping people learn about and recognize and go get tested for HPV mm-hmm. because it's something that is thankfully now we can prevent it by and large we have vaccines for it, which is fantastic I was too old for the vaccine when it first came out right. it's fantastic I think that we can potentially prevent all these cancers but the vaccine is amazing. Absolutely. I mean, it is amazing. There are several cancers, so many gynecologic cancers, like cervical, vaginal, vulvar cancers that are preventable with mm-hmm. the HPV vaccine. Absolutely. And then, and nowadays, um, the oropharyngeal cancers are even eclipsing, I think, rates of cervical cancer. So for men, they have, of course, penal, mm-hmm. anal, and then the oropharyngeal are the most common ones. But it, HPV is kind of a nasty bugger. It can lead to a lot of different cancers. So the fact that we have a vaccine vaccine that can prevent pretty much all of those is is really quite miraculous and I wish more people knew about it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I want to circle back to, so you had mentioned the impact that, you know, your treatment and everything that you had been through, how it had impacted your relationship. How did it impact your relationship with family members and friends? Did you feel like it was something that you could talk to them and that you could openly discuss with them? For the most part, I could with my very close family. But, you know, I, my husband and I just decided to keep my cancer under wraps for the most part. We didn't want to tell the kids because they were still very young. I think my oldest was five years ago. She would have been about eight or nine. So my youngest was still in preschool. She was like three or four years old. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we just didn't want to say anything to them, mainly because we just didn't want them to needlessly worry. And we figured they're on a need-to-know basis. So if things had gotten much worse, of course, we probably would have said something. But I never lost my hair through my treatment. So I I never visibly looked like a typical cancer patient and so they just knew that mommy was sick so we didn't say anything to them and in order to make sure that they didn't find out through friends we only told limited people around us in our circles so we told our immediate family of course and my mom was able to come and help with some of the treatment when I was very sick mm-hmm. and in the hospital too but for the most part I felt like I could there were some people that it's interesting cancer I feel like is kind of polarizing what I mean by that is 
that the people that I was close to, some friends became even closer. Same with family. While some others that I thought were friends turned out to be more on the periphery. So it really has a way of kind of highlighting, I think, the differences between those two groups of people. There are some people that I reached out to for help, for instance, who who actually didn't help, which was really disappointing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then other people that kind of almost surprised me that were so accepting and supportive and helpful um, in ways that I never would have really expected or thought of. I guess the short answer is yes and no. (laughs) I was and I wasn't. Well, I definitely can relate. I had a very similar experience. There were people who amazed me and they were incredibly helpful and then others that I thought would be helpful really weren't and so it's it's very interesting Mm -hmm. how the dynamics work yeah it is I mean you know it's interesting I was just thinking about this morning actually you know I feel like there's kind of typical responses that people will give you when they find out you have cancer and one of those I think is oh it's just let me know what I can do let me know how we can help you and I think some people legitimately mean that and Mm -hmm. then others probably just don't really know what to say so they say that and there were a couple people where I said okay yeah well this would be great if you could do x and y and then they didn't mm-hmm. <laughs> which was really quite <laughs> quite shocking at the time I was like well because okay. it is it's a different it's challenging to even ask for help mm-hmm. especially absolutely. when you're at a low point so. oh yeah it, it absolutely is and a lot of the times I remember thinking the kind of help that would actually have been helpful were little silly things like taking my dog for a walk or you know having my kids over for a couple hours to play games so I could get a break things like that just they're, they're not major things just right. little things that would have been helpful but yeah you're Right. It is tough to ask for help, for sure. But I think my family, for the most part, has been really pretty accepting. And I know that uh, from a lot of other, especially HPV cancer survivors, sometimes family isn't always very understanding of what their experience is. And there can be a lot of judgment, especially with having what's considered a sexual transmitted disease. But my family was fortunately very supportive and helpful and understanding. Thank goodness. That's definitely very helpful, especially since you had mentioned based on your outer appearance, you didn't lose your hair, you didn't look you know, sick like a typical Mm -hmm. cancer patient. Um, Mm -hmm. So the looks can be very deceiving as well. Yes, absolutely. They definitely can. The kind of scars that we have aren't visible. And and so a lot of people will think, oh, you're not really sick or, oh, you're not really feeling badly. But when in fact you can be, that's been one thing I think I learned from this whole experience is just how different cancer looks and how different cancer can be treated based on who you are and what you have. And I had no idea because I always assumed that all cancer patients lost their hair. They all kind of look the same way, but in fact, they really don't. That's been kind of eye-opening for me. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember I did, I also did not lose my hair with the treatment for cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. And instead of losing weight, I actually gained quite a bit of weight. Um, My cheeks were puffy. I was eating like I was pregnant because I was pumped with so much steroids and it was making me so Mm -hmm. hungry all of the time. So Sarah, would you be able to share, were there any particular challenges that you faced along the way? And how did you overcome them? How, what has helped you move forward during treatment and afterwards? During treatment, the most challenging parts for me were, one, not really telling a lot of people. And in hindsight, I don't know that it would have necessarily been a lot easier if I had told a lot of other people. 
just, I remember thinking that, you know, back to that kind of point where you don't really look like a cancer patient. There were times when I just wanted to yell at people, look, I'm in the middle of cancer treatment. I feel like you would be nicer to me (laughs) if you knew what was going on with me. So there were, I think, points when I was challenged by that, but then also just the realities of the treatment. I remember spending just hours in the bathroom in my bedroom, and that was kind of challenging. So finding little points of fresh air, getting outside in nature. I remember my mom bought some bird feeders, which I never would have thought of, that I have since come to love watching birds. And since I wasn't really well enough to go outside, she had the bird feeders installed outside our kitchen area so that I could sit and watch the birds. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing that I remember helped a lot, actually. So I love being outside and being in nature. So not being able to go outside was very challenging for me. Mm-hmm. After treatment, I think one thing that's actually helped a lot has been being able to share my story with people and just kind of connect with others who've had similar experiences. Mm-hmm. So there aren't a lot of vaginal cancer survivors. There are just fewer of us in cervical. And so I was able to connect with a lot of cervical survivors. And so much of our stories are shared that it's really been helpful to know that, hey, A, I'm not the only one, and B, that, that our kind of collective stories motivate us to share and prevent this in other people has really been, for me in particular, very helpful. Kind of always keeping my eye on what's ahead and how it can help other people so that other people don't go through this. It's been something really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And then being outside as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> enjoying enjoying the natural world and trying to have as much fun and adventure as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. I know that the advocacy is so important to you. What message do you want everyone to know? I would like everyone to know that A, most of these cancers are very preventable. So to make sure that you go to the doctor, make sure you pay attention to your body, make sure you're paying attention to things that we normally don't talk about, like vaginal discharge or odor or poop and all the stuff that we're reluctant to talk about. Mm -hmm. We need, I think, to get more comfortable talking about those kinds of things because if there's any kind of shame or reluctance to talk about problems that you might be having with those issues, then you're less likely to seek out help um, if there might be a problem. That's one thing I would like people to know is that A, it's preventable. So be sure you go to your doctor and then B, just to try and avoid the shame and just get more comfortable talking about those kinds of issues. That's very valuable, very important. Are there any resources, Sarah, that you've come across that you have found to be helpful for support or guidance? Yeah, I found, especially when I was going through my pre-cervical issues, I really found the resources with survivor.org, C-E-R-V-I-V-O-R.org to Mm -hmm. be super helpful. There are actually nowadays, too, on social media, lots of groups associated with probably almost any issue that you might be having in your life, not just cancer-related, but there are a couple of groups in particular. One is an HPV-related cancer group, and that's been super helpful for me, even kind of just ongoing in terms of you know, dealing with symptoms or finding other helpful resources here and there, especially with my advocacy work as well. It's nice to connect with other advocates there. So those have probably been the two primary sources of information, I'd say. The CDC also has some really great information in terms of HPV-related cancers and the vaccine as well. I really like their website, too, the Center for Disease Control. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, they've got just a ton of resources and they've got great PR toolkits as well. So if you're an advocate and want to share information, it's nice that you have such a great evidence-based resource to share information from. Absolutely. And we'll wrap it up with this, Sarah. If If you could travel back in time and tell yourself one thing of encouragement or wisdom at the time of diagnosis, what would it be? That's a good question. I think I would probably tell myself to ask for help. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like I did in a couple of situations and that kind of scared me off Mm -hmm. when the people didn't fulfill it, but I would continue to ask for help. And I also would say, you know, you're not alone. Mm -hmm. You're not the only one going through this. So much of my treatment was isolated and I felt like I was alone, but I really wasn't. And I've since grown to understand that and that life is good. Life gets better and life is really good. Well, that's really valuable insight, just focusing on just not in the moment because there's, you know, so much happening initially, so much to process that it does get better and Mm -hmm. that really there's a huge support network through various resources and you're exactly right that you, you aren't alone, even though you may feel like it a lot of times in the moment. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to speak with us this morning. I know it takes a lot of courage to speak openly about our personal experiences, but I also believe it's how we connect with others. And the more we talk about it, the more, you know, the more conversational it becomes. And especially since, you know, so many cancers are preventable. So thank you so much again. Oh, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me and for helping me share my story and share my message. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. And I do want to take a moment to thank our listeners for tuning in. Please take Sarah's message to heart that we must be diligent in listening to our bodies and speaking up, speaking openly about our concerns. Please share our podcast with others that you think would benefit. Please check out our website at speakgyno.org. We have made updates to our website, including additional resources, a take action tab, in a donation link for anyone who would like to support us. And as always, may we empower you, inspire you, and spark conversations.